Hey guys, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Maggie. And we interview Asian entrepreneurs around the world to amplify their voices and empower Asians to pursue their dreams and goals. We believe that each person has a message and a unique story from their entrepreneurial journey that they can share with all of us. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. Today, we have a very special guest with us. His name is Ken Shiro Gushi, also known as Ken Gushi. He is an international competitor in the sport of drifting. He is the youngest successful competitor in both the D1 Grand Prix of Japan and the Formula Drift Championships when he was 16, despite not passing his driving test at the time. His career highlights include multiple top three series finishes in the Formula Drift Pro Championships, exhibition class win at the Pikes Peak Hill Climb, Toyota LBP CR Pro class win. He is a current member of the SAG Union performing on-screen stunt work for multiple automotive manufacturers. Today, Ken is now a factory works driver for Toyota Gazoo Racing. Ken, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. It's, uh, it's actually a real pleasure to be here with you guys, given that you guys have provided a pretty decent platform for us Asian Americans to, you know, showcase who we are and tell our story. So thank you guys for having me. Of course. We're super excited to have you on today. And before we get started, I do want to note that Ken and I, Ken and I went to the same high school. Shout out to Gavolito <laughs> High School. We're seeing um, an interviewing notable alumni. So let's hop right into it. Ken, yeah. tell us what your childhood's like. I want to hear more about it. Yeah. So, um, I've actually had quite the unorthodox upbringing. And, um, you know, when you guys hear stories about, you know, their Asian parents bringing up kids, uh, most of the time you hear, you'll hear them say, you know, like they wanted me to be a doctor, lawyer, dentist, uh, whatnot. Um, in my case, I actually had none of that. And my parents had me when they were extremely young. They were both 19 and 20 wow. um, with no college education. They graduated high school and, um, you know, and there, there I was. So being young parents, they didn't really, I guess they didn't really know where to start and everything was kind of just like, you know, learn as you go and do as you go type of a story for them. So, um, at the same time, their parents never really forced them to do anything they didn't want to do either. And they had more of a very free willed lifestyle and, uh, childhood growing up. Mm. So that was sort of their take on child upbringing was to just let them do what they want, let them figure it, figure, figure it out themselves and not force them to do anything that they didn't want to do. So um, that was my childhood. Uh, but my dad was heavily into automotive repair and motorsports at the same time. So I can remember as far as I can, I was always following him around the house garage with a with my one piece jumpsuit that they bought me pretending to be a mechanic, but I was always following my dad around with a tool, a wrench in my hand, a hammer, screwdriver, whatnot. Um, so that's all I knew as my childhood um, goes back as far as I can remember, all I know, or all I remember was just following my dad around the shop or the garage, um, wanting to help him out, wanting to work on cars, trying to just be like him. And he was really just the biggest hero to me, my inspiration. And I just wanted to be exactly like him. Um, to go a little before that, I was actually, um, born in Japan, Okinawa, Japan, and my family moved us here when I was a little over two years old. So my sister and I have a younger sister, but we were both born in Japan. Uh, we moved here as, you know, little, pretty much little babies. Um, and then went back and forth to Japan a couple of times, but, um, my whole family is Japanese. I mean, we're, we're all really heavily Japanese, like, <laughs> so Japanese to the point where inside the house, they had a rule where I couldn't speak any English wow. um, because they were afraid that my sister and I would soon forget to learn, forget to speak the Japanese language. Mm -hmm. And they didn't want my grandparents having a hard time communicating with us. So that golden rule of speaking only Japanese in the house kind of stuck all throughout. And it's been so long in that custom that, now it's so awkward to speak with my sister in English or anything outside of Japanese. So mm -hmm. in a sense, that was a good thing, but that also helped me retain my Japanese culture and the lifestyle. And, you know, I guess kept the family bond because we all were able to communicate together. 
Um, the reason why my parents moved here in the first place or my grandparents moved the whole family here in the first place was because uh, my grandfather is a very successful karate master. He's a teacher. Mm -hmm. um, he passed away, unfortunately, but he was uh, invited to come to the States to teach karate and uh, he didn't want to leave the family in Okinawa. So he said, hey, let's uh, let's all pack up mm -hmm. and go stateside. My dad at the same time had a goal of running the Pikes Peak Hill Climb, um, international hill climb in Colorado Springs. And I'll get to that a little later because I was also a part of that story too. But he was like, yeah, all right, all right, dad, let's go to America. You know, you do your karate. I want to get into motorsports and do rally racing. So we all moved out here. My grandpa and my dad were teaching karate. Um, and at the same time, uh, they opened up a coffee coffee shop when we moved here. So this story is actually kind of crazy. My grandpa's family friend, or we called him um, uncle, mm -hmm. he sort of convinced my grandpa to open up this coffee restaurant. And um, of course, we didn't know a lick of English, uh, came here. My grandpa, my grandma, my aunts, uncles, my dad were like, okay, all right. So yeah, we bought this building. We have this kitchen, coffee, coffee stand. Now what? Like, how do we even start a business, open a business? This is a whole new experience for all of us. So without knowing any English, you know, my uncle or that uncle that my grandpa knew hired his kids who were already uh, native English speakers to help us out, work at the coffee shop. But this whole time, it wasn't like he was trying to help us out. He was just trying to, I guess, trick my grandpa into buying this building um, and spending all this money that we soon were going to run out of. Mm -hmm. So we came here with some decent money, but turns out this uncle was taking all the money from us. And oh, wow. then we went broke, like really broke. So we all had to move into this one house uh, for, I think it was like a three or four bedroom house in Monterey Park, but there was like eight of us. Mm -hmm. living in one house and then uh, my dad said you know I can't do this anymore like I gotta get out of here so he quit that coffee house uh, which was soon to disappear soon to be gone anyways he mm -hmm. quit that coffee house and started working at this automotive repair shop called Asari Auto in East LA or um, I guess it's borderline Monterey Park but it was East LA uh, and then that's where his automotive career started um, he became a mechanic at that shop um, 10 years later, after working there, he opened up his own shop called Gucci Auto in San Gabriel. And that was like three blocks away from Gabrielino High School. Mm -hmm. um, we were there for, I think, 12 years before he sold that location, ended up buying Asari Auto, the first shop that he started at. So mm -hmm. bought that shop out. And then um, just last two years ago, he sold the shop and retired. But oh, wow. that was my dad's story. And my racing career actually started when I was... Um, Actually, let's go before that. My driving career actually started when I was eight. Oh, wow. I told you guys earlier, but um, at eight years old, he had me helping him move customers' cars around. And these customers obviously don't know that I was doing this, but I was moving around oh, customers' no. cars around the shop because, you know, we were short-staffed. So I would go to the shop with them, you know, try to learn the art of mechanics and then um, help my dad out. Um, moving cars around. And then even some mornings, he would wake me up on a Saturday morning. He's like, Hey, Oh crap. Okay. What drive me to the, drive me to the shop. I'm like, Oh, okay. <laughs> like an eight years old, nine year old kid driving a car on the street, <laughs> driving my dad to work. And he's like, all right, take the car home. So then I would drive the car home and then go back to sleep. So that, that was what my Saturday mornings looked like. <laughs> That's crazy. Um, yeah. And then when I was like, 10 or 11 we finally went to do some real motorsports racing so my dad was a huge rally car fan or rally is when you take a car and you drive as fast as you can up the mountains and these are all professional events so these are closed roads um professionally timed there's a start line finish line and you race up a mountain as fast as you can or these stage rallies and so we went to a few with his prepped out rally car and he let me be the co-driver of those races so the co-driver co is when you have a passenger seat navigator reading the stage notes to tell the driver okay what turns are coming up next so mm -hmm. i was in the passenger seat you know reading stage notes to my dad 
And then one year he's like, you know what? Why don't you drive this one? So I ended up rally racing or started rally racing at the age of like 11 or 12. And I wasn't supposed to, because when you register as a driver, you have to provide, you know, your driver's license or motorsport license or any sort of credential that, you know, says you're safe to drive or old enough to drive. But he, he always had this mentality like, I don't really care about anything. (laughs) Just do what you want to do. So he put me in the driver's seat. He's like, all right, go, let's, let's go. So he read the stage notes as I raced up the mountain with no driver's license. (laughs) That's where my racing story began. Um, and then when I was about 12 or 13, um, I mean, there's a very, very popular anime series in Japan called initial D. I don't know if you guys have heard of it. So yeah, it's basically the story of a kid helping his dad out and he's delivering tofu in the middle of night with no license. Mm -hmm. Um, and he turns out to be the fastest kid on the mountain because he drives this Corolla every single morning, delivering tofu, helping his dad's business out. So I started watching that and my dad's like, Hey, like that story kind of resonates with, yeah, that's like, that's us. Like I'm the dad, you're the kid helping my business. I was like, Oh, that's kind of cool. So what does he do? He goes out and buys a Toyota Corolla. That's like the same exact car they used in the anime series. (laughs) <laughs> and then um well of course instead of delivering tofu because we had no tofu delivery service <laughs> we ended up driving to a desert or a dry lake bed called el mirage dry lake bed and that's only like an hour and a half north of la county so we would go there pretty much every weekend uh, just practicing how to drift mm-hmm. so that's where we were like hey drifting is kind of cool it's cheaper than rally racing because we don't have to build a full-on race car you know, we can just take our Corolla to the desert and, you know, mess around. So that was back in 2001. And then uh, around 2002, 2003, this Japanese drifting organization called D1GP or D1 Grand Prix mm-hmm. decided to host a driver's search event in the U.S. And so when our local drift fanatics heard of that opportunity, they're like, hey, Ken, you know, there's this... Uh, or hey GT, GT is my dad's name. Hey GT, there's this drifting event coming to LA soon, and uh, the organizers D1GP. Like, do you guys have any interest in it? And dad's like, yeah, sure, why not? Let's just try it out. So we ended up competing, and of course, the registration process. Mm-hmm. I was like, Dad, hey, what are we gonna do? They're like asking me for a license. He's like, All right. <laughs> so he passes me this driver's license. And I look, I'm like, oh, it was his employee's driver's license. <laughs> <laughs> Just write down the driver's license number that no one will know, whatever. So that I wrote his name, his driver's license number, and um, I competed under his name. I forgot his name, but <laughs> but then we ended up taking like the top three spots wow. on the podium. Like we had gone to the top three and like, all right, um, Hideki, you know, Masayama or whatever his name was. <laughs> I was looking at me like, I think that's you. You know, you got to go up there. <laughs> so then I'm like, yeah, that, that's me. Like, oh, yeah, come on up. Like, you look awfully young. Like, what's your story? I'm like, oh, um, so about that. I'm actually, you know, like 13 years old. That's not my name. And then they're like, oh, how did you, what? Like, you're not supposed to be doing this. But then they ended up liking that story that I was so young, Gosh, yeah. doing so well in um, this driver's search. <laughs> So then, yeah. So then they were like, oh, okay, well, he, yeah, they made this whole thing about like being the youngest drifter in D1 Grand Prix and whatnot. So that's actually where my pro career started. And then at the same time, like all these automotive aftermarket manufacturers are like, oh, drifting, what's this drifting thing? And this is, mind you, way before Fast and Furious or way before Tokyo Drift. So no one really knew what drifting was, but they saw the hype and they saw the potential of how big pro drifting can become. So all these companies wanted to get into it all of a sudden, like, you know, Yokohama Tire, Falcon Tire, Rotoro, all these brands were like, I want a piece of it too. Like let's hire or let's sponsor all the drivers that were there at that event and, and try to get that young kid, that Kangushi kid. So being this young 13 year old kid, I'm like talking to these like multi-million dollar corporations about, you know, sponsorships, about, you know, representing their brand. And I had like zero experience working with like, these adults. Yeah. And um, honestly, I had like no, no real direction Mm -hmm. so then most of the time my dad was helping me out with you know negotiating deals and sponsorships and whatnot um but yeah it was just a crazy time to be around cars because 
drifting was so new. Um, and it was just a hype thing, you know, when D1 Grand Prix brought over their drivers from Japan, everyone was like, oh my God, that's like Taniguchi Nobuteru. It's like, these are all like superheroes that we watched as kids when they, when we borrowed like rental DVDs from Japan, option video one night. And these were the drivers that were on TV. So I'm like idolizing them, like starstruck. Oh my God, I could drive with these guys and compete with them. Um, and so, yeah, it was just crazy. My story actually in between is quite long and um, let's just say fast forward 20 years, I drive for Toyota Gazoo Racing or Toyota Motorsports North America um, and I'm still doing it. So it's uh, it's pretty wild to see that I've come full circle starting in a Toyota Corolla in the desert and now I drive for Toyota Motor North America and their newest GR Supra. Love that. Yeah. Go ahead, Megan. That's amazing. Wow. I... Yeah, I mean, I was going to kind of like, kind of bring up my questions one by one, but you kind of went through the story, but I loved how you kind of encapsulated everything all together. And I love how like care, kind of like carefree your dad is kind of just like forcing you to use someone else's driver's license and being like, hey, try this, try that, you know? And that's the kind of mentality that like pushes you to try new things. So I love that. I love that story. I had no idea, Ken. You know, I just knew you (laughs) as a really popular guy in high school that Everyone knew I was not popular at all. Everyone knew you drove really fast cars. Like when you were crowned like the prince of drifting or something, all of us like, well, who's this Ken guy? You know, and I remember like having one class of you where we were picking up roll call sheets <laughs> around school. Oh, I was a TA or something. Yeah, yeah. We were both TAs during that year. And then I'm like, oh my God, it's Ken. <laughs> you like run up <laughs> on the stairs really fast all the time. But I didn't remember that. But I had no idea, like, your backstory until now. Like, this is, like, 15, 16, 17 years like, later. Was he but, really considered the prince of drifting? Yeah, yes. we oh, all wow, knew who he was. Awesome. Like, all, like, all the Asian girls are like, oh, my God, that's Ken. Like, he's so, <laughs> he's so sexy, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I'm like, funny, at the time, I wasn't comfortable with my sexuality yet. I'm like, I don't know. He's, he's, he's okay. But now I'm older. Like, oh, shit, it's Ken, you know? <laughs> and I'm just messing around. But, yeah, we heard on a different podcast, your dad's reasoning to move to the U.S. So it's pretty spontaneous as well. You know, he kind of just took the whole family and moved from Okinawa to to the U.S. to pursue this dream. Can you quickly talk about that real quick? The reason why he moved from Japan to the U.S. real quick? Yeah, so um, he was a big-time fan of this race called the Pikes Peak International Hill Climb, and that's based out of Colorado Springs. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's basically a race where you have, you know, a start line, uh, 12 miles of mountain roads. It's, it's a climb up the mountain roads, um, 156 corners, um, go from a 9,000 feet altitude to 14,110, which is basically two miles into the sky. Um, and it's America's second oldest race after the Indy 500. But, um, going back to his uh, rally racing roots, like he, he's a guy that loves going sideways and just making the cars do what they weren't designed to do. So like <laughs> spinning, spinning, spinning around, you know, doing reverse 180s, drifting. Um, but in Okinawa, Japan, he was actually doing a little bit of autocross or like Jim Connor racing and motorsports scene in Okinawa at the time was really tiny. Uh, if not, it was non-existent. So he just wanted to get out of that bubble. And when my grandpa gave him this opportunity to you know, move the entire family states, I was like, yes, I can probably achieve the dream of racing up the Pikes Peak Hill Climb. So then when we came here, obviously, like it wasn't easy for him to build up a race car or even a shop. So he had to work his way up. And uh, finally, his opportunity first came in 2007 um, to go up the Pikes Peak International Hill Climb. Um, the crazy part is this first opportunity that he got, he was like, Hey, Ken, why don't you run it? Like, why don't you drive the the race? I'm like, are you sure? Like, this is our first opportunity we have at doing this race. Like you don't want to drive. I said, no, I want you to race it. Um, and so I did so 2007 <laughs> June, uh, we took his 2000 Subaru Impreza that's been, that was converted to a race car. He, he spent one whole year building it. Uh, and when we bought it, we actually flew to Seattle, drove it back down. Um, and he still had loans on it. So he, it was a loan or yeah, it was a loan. He was still making payments as he built it up. 
2007 race comes up and the, the race itself is a week long. So we have like practice days and then qualifying. And then the main race is on Sunday. So till Sunday, we were doing good. We were like hauling out our times and qualifying were great. Practice times are great. Um, and that year they still allowed a co-driver. Um, so basically the driver, you know, reads, reads the navigation or stage notes. There was another guy who was basically a veteran of that race. And my dad was like, Hey, instead of having me as a co-driver, let's put him during for practice only. Mm -hmm. So for practice runs, he was my co-driver. Then comes race day. And my dad's like, okay, I'm going to be your co-driver for the main race because you know, I want to be a part of it too. So I'm like, okay, dad, let's go. So it comes a race day. We're at the starting line. I'm like really nervous because you know, this is the only chance we have. It's a one chance race. Basically you have one shot to make it to the finish line from the start line. And there's about a hundred competitors. Wow. Um, 60 of them are cars and the rest are motorcycles or quads. So then our time comes up at the start line, I'm like really nervous. My dad's like, are you ready? I'm like, yeah, all right, let's, let's do it. <laughs> so the start line, the flag goes down. Mm -hmm. We're going up the mountain. And then um, two miles into the race or the hill climb, I fly off. Like I literally fly off the mountain <gasps> and we what? crash. Like we crash really hard. Like I basically fly so fast off the mountain over a ditch. I land on top of a tree line break the tree in half and that's actually what saved us from hitting another gigantic tree so then as i look back i'm like what the hell happened like why did i fly off this corner but the last thing i remember is my dad saying oh shit before we flew off <laughs> so till this day we argue my dad and i both argue about what exactly happened that day i tell him that he misread the stage note mm -hmm. so that corner it was supposed to be a fast right right hand corner uphill and then a sharp left-hand corner. So you got to get heavy on the brakes and then turn left to hairpin. It's very slow. He didn't read that part of the stage note. All he read was a fast five right. Mm -hmm. So I'm going hauling ass on the right-hand turn, and then he doesn't say anything. I'm like, okay. But I see a U-turn <laughs> sign coming up. So then, and then the last thing I hear is, oh, shit, and then we're off the mountain. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, yeah, he still had loans on his car, payments. We completely wrecked it. We DNF the race. I didn't get to finish. Oh. I'm like, man, Dad, like, that's kind of your fault. <laughs> you didn't read that right. Like, no, I did. You didn't listen. So then till this day, we argue. The cool part is he spent a whole nother year rebuilding that car the very next year, he went up and ended up winning uh, third place in the time attack class, which is crazy. First time up getting on the podium, and he uh, was able to do it. So it was kind of like redemption mm -hmm. for my mistakes. He was like, you know, what? I'm going to show my kid what's up, go, go up the next <laughs> year. And he ended up taking a class podium with that same exact card that I managed to fly off the mountain with. <laughs> well, I started by saying, I'm glad you're safe. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. sounds pretty dangerous. We're glad you're both safe. <laughs> yeah. Another thing is, it's so cool hearing like the the proximity of age with you and your dad because mm -hmm. they had you so young that, you know, mm -hmm. in actuality, it's like less than a generation away. And it's for you guys, like, become really good friends. I really like hearing that story. Yeah. Oh, we're pretty much like rivals, we're competitors. Yeah, at one point he was actually competing in the Formula Drift Championships while I was also competing. And, you know, there were many times where I would line up against him during practice. I'm like, man, I do not want to lose to my dad. So I would just like <laughs> smoke him. Were there we always have that competitive nature. What was that? Were there any points where people were saying like, oh, you know, going to your dad and saying like, hey, your son is getting a little bit better than you. How do you feel about that? I think everyone knew from the start that I was always better than my dad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, from the get-go. Yeah. I, I do want to talk more about your mindset mm -hmm. and, you know, mm -hmm. learning from mistakes and reflecting a bit. Like, we understand that racing is really, really dangerous, you know, and that mentality. Every time you go to your track, like you're putting almost your life on the line. And pushing your car to his, to his absolute limit to get the performances you want like what kind of preparation do you do you have before these races or how do you practice or how do you practice your mindset because you yeah. know, i feel like that's that's a big element on what you're doing right now is your mindset yeah and how much would you say is like more of the mental strength part and then how mm -hmm. much of it is more of like talent and skill set mm -hmm. so throughout the years my mindset has actually changed and um Again, going back to when I first started at 13, I was so young, naive, like I had zero experience in this field of professional motorsports. So 
at the time I felt like everything was sort of handed to me. Of course, I didn't need to negotiate with, you know, my sponsors or other brands and companies that represented that I represented. So I felt like my mindset at the time was very, you know, of course, being so young, I was very immature. And I felt like, you know, I felt like I was God because like, maybe I was like, oh man, I have like this natural born talent. I'm competing against guys that are three times my age. I kick ass. And it was sort of, I guess, cocky, like maybe too cocky in a way. Mm -hmm. um, the advantage I had was that I started earlier than all these other, com other competitors. So at the time I was better than them. Like I was definitely a better driver, but the sport of drifting was so new that there was so much progression to be made. And after it was pretty much like every single event or every round, the other drivers were like making huge progress. Like they were getting way faster, way better, but I was staying like stagnant mm -hmm. um, because I had that cocky mentality. Like, I don't need to practice. I'm, I'm good enough. Um, well, it turns out like I was, I was good, but then they were getting better and better. Their cars were getting faster while I was making zero progress. So then um, I didn't realize that I had that sort of like, very, very negative mentality till I was about 17 or 18 when I was heavily sponsored by a huge automotive manufacturer and that was uh, Ford racing, but I'll get back to that. But my mindset was so, um, I guess it was toxic for a professional athlete because like I had no desire to get better because I, I thought I was good enough. Mm -hmm. So that kind of bit me in the ass a little bit and made me realize like, holy shit, like all these guys are getting way better than me. Um, and I'm not winning anymore. Like I'm not, winning my rounds i'm like losing in the first round of tandem competition um and so i had to change that and that's when i started to realize like okay i need to really focus on my driving and kind of put away this whole like fame outside and like really get to work um, if i wanted to stay alive in this industry because it's a very um cutthroat industry mm -hmm. um, our job we like we don't have job security especially in motorsports, like one year we might have a contract making tons of money, you know, doing all these competitions. And next year, your sponsors might drop You're like, Oh, like, well, you didn't perform last year. So we can't really sponsor you anymore. Like we kind of moved on to another driver. So I realized that a little late. And so I had to like really put in work to make sure that these sponsors were still interested in um, my character and my likeliness, my talent. Um, and so that changed my mentality changed then. Um, but from about 17 to, uh, when I was, what was it, 2016, so 30 for that period of like maybe 13 years, I was, uh, I would call myself a hired driver. So I was the, the driver, the race car driver that companies hired to drive. So basically there's a team owner, so there's a team and then they would pay me to drive for them. So the car, the team belongs to someone else. Mm -hmm. I just fly in put my helmet on, compete during the weekend, put my hel take my helmet off, fly home. That was it. Wow. So that's a paid driver. Um, in 2016, I actually opened up my own uh, company, Kangushi Motorsports Corporation, and uh, initiated a team owner slash operator slash driver operative. So then I became a team owner. And that's when, again, my mentality changed once more. So this was actually recent. So 2016, um, instead of just focusing on driving, now I have to focus on the entire operation, right? So paying my team, uh, logistics of transporting my race car, my race equipment, um, scheduling photo shoots, you know, designing the car livery, designing my race car suit, and then timing all that scheduling. So all of a sudden, not only do I have to focus on driving and performing at the top level, I also have to focus on now, okay, when do I need to finish my car to make it in time for round one? Or like, when do I schedule an appointment to get my car shot for this media company? Um, and so uh, they say, or well, this is a fact, but motorsports is a business. Like the entire operation is a business, right? One, you have to keep your sponsors happy. Like you have to always continuously find ways to be relative in the scene because okay. like it's, you're not providing them any content or like any sort of reason to sponsor you, then why would they spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to um, put their logo on your car? Right. So then, um, then I had to change my mindset into a business mindset instead of like an athlete, because we call ourselves not just drivers, but athletes. Um, but instead of just being an athlete, like how do I change my operation to be a little bit more attractive to these sponsors. So Toyota, for, Toyota, for example, um, 
No, Toyota is actually interesting because they're very heavy into um, being multicultural, right? And of course, it's the perfect place to talk about it, but they allocate their athletes to different organizations, to different media companies to represent Toyota as a brand. So I do a lot of um, meet and greets or even like, not podcasts, but like talking seminars and whatnot um, for crowds that are heavily Asian, Asian American, uh, AAPI, those that, those types of communities. Um, and also when the whole BLM movement happened last year, Toyota was huge into it. They were very active into, you know, promoting social equality, justice and whatnot. So, um, they're very good about stuff like that. And, um, the reason why I say that is because then I get to like find reasons to attract, you know, Toyota into like finding a justifying cause to sponsor me. So mm. basically I tell them, Hey, look, I'm Asian American. Like I, I can cater to this group, right. then different types of groups, but then they're like, Oh yeah, you're right. Like we can use you for like different things. And that's how kind of like, find reasons to stay relative within the company, within Toyota, but not just that, like other sponsors, like if I don't have a reason for them to sponsor me, like a body kit, mm -hmm. then they're going to be like, well, why would we waste money on him, money on him or like products on him? But then if I tell him like, well, okay, the car that I'm building is actually going to be in this like TV show, this commercial. Um, and then I'm going to talk with like, or I'm going to start like a video program with like, like likes of like Sun Kang, you know, Han from Fast and Furious. So then like I changed my mindset into finding reasons for them to sponsor me because before it was just like, okay, well, I'm just a pro athlete, take it or leave it. Right. Mm -hmm. So that was my most recent mind shift into becoming more business oriented mm -hmm. as a uh, team owner operator, not just as a athlete or driver. Yeah. Mm, interesting. Kind of complicated, but yeah, yeah. yeah. The, it's a whole business model that goes behind motorsports. Right. Complicated right. but relatable. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like when you were younger, a lot of these sponsors were actually reaching out to you because they were seeing your name more often, right? But now you know kind of how to like negotiate with the sponsors and from a like business oriented standpoint, kind of negotiate with them to see if they would be willing to be sponsors based on these like one, two, three factors, right? Yeah, which is right. And cool. also, Go ahead, also because I've been in, this industry for so long, like more than 20 years, right? Um, people get tired of seeing the same thing. Like people get tired of seeing the same Ken Gucci, like, oh, it's him again. Like we already saw him like 20, 20 times already in the past 20 seasons, like what's new? So then you have to continuously find reasons to be, I guess, relative in the scene. And that's the sad part about motorsports is that most kids nowadays, I say most because not all, uh, most kids, don't have an interest or don't even show an interest to go get their driver's license. Like I know guys, I have friends with, you know, kids that are reaching the ages of like 16, 17, 18, I ask them like, Hey, like, are they driving it? They're like, no, like, why not? Like, can't they get their license? I'm like, yeah, but they don't need to, like, they don't want to, like they have absolutely zero interest in cars. And I think it's because like they have more interest in like, you know, computer gaming, cell phones, social media, whatnot. So mm -hmm. motorsports itself is, kind of dying like it's a dying breed um and the age age group within motorsports in the audience just continues to get older and older and older every year so yeah, in that sense it's hard to uh stay relative in today's world mm -hmm. well when when we have kids and you have kids we'll make sure they're into motorsports keep the sport alive <laughs> Bring, bring them my way. I'll teach them how to do drifting stuff. <laughs> At the age of eight, too. We'll send them to you when they're eight years old. <laughs> no, seven. You got to beat Ken by one year. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Hey, Ken, is that my kid moving your car around there in the shop? Yeah, that's him. You know he's in kindergarten, right? <laughs> you know, I didn't have a license in high school, right? Did you know that? Yes, yes, I heard of that before. Yeah, I wasn't sure it was real or not. I just people yeah, it's real. So um, did you I, actually get your license? No, you're one of them, dude. Oh man, <laughs> you're just um, using someone else's license during his. No, no, no. Um, <laughs> this is actually quite embarrassing, but I didn't have a license throughout all all of high school and some parts of college. So now imagine having to go out on dates. <laughs> I would have my parents drive me 
to pick up my girlfriend and then tell my dad, like, hey, dad, you need to drop us off at the mall or the movies or something. It's like, all right, whatever. But yeah, no choice because, you know, obviously I didn't have a license. And part of the reason why I didn't have a license is because of my dad. Now, to get a little bit more into the story, um, when I was 15, my dad had, had a customer that was, you know, into drifting. He wanted to learn how to drift and he knew that I was doing this drifting thing. So he asked my dad, like, hey, do you think I can borrow your son for a night and have him teach me how to do donuts? Like, you know, oh, it's a private parking lot. He's not going to get caught. Don't worry. My dad's like, are you sure? Like, he's not going to get busted by the cops or something. And he's like, yeah, don't worry. It's a private lot. You know, there's no one that's going to see us. And my dad's like, okay, fine, go ahead. So then this guy, I think his name was Walter or something. I, I hated the guy, Walter. I hated the name Walter because of him. But he <laughs> takes me out to this parking lot in the city of industry. And uh, at first, I'm like, all right, Walter, show me what you got. Like, show me what you're doing. And I'll point out what you're doing wrong. And I'll show you how to do it. Mm-hmm. So he's trying to do donuts nothing's going right like he's just like a mess right i'm like okay all right let me get in so i hop in the driver's seat i do literally half a turn and i see lights flashing there's like cops busting into the lot and almost slams into our car he has his gun drawn he's like get out of the car or i'll put your hands up I'm like oh god here it comes so obviously i shut up the car my hands are in the air <laughs> like and i'm like hey hey like what do we do walter he's like uh I don't know. I thought this was a private lot. <laughs> so the cops like license and registration. Well, obviously I didn't have one. I was only like 15. I didn't have registration. So he pulls out his license and he goes up to him. He's like, yo, sorry, officer. This is my car. He was just teaching me how to do donuts. I'm like, why would he be teaching how to do donuts in a private lot? <laughs> so, so I got busted. The short story is I got busted. I got written up for no license, no insurance, reckless endangerment, reckless driving, past curfew trespassing so i got hit with all those um went to court paid like a huge fine and then they're like all right ken you can't drive like we're gonna take away your your driving privilege until further notice Mm. i'm like great i can't get my license next year and you know being a professional driver that hurt me a lot like it hurt me a lot i couldn't drive to school i couldn't take out girls on dates (laughs) it just sucked so then come when I was 16, I built a whole new race car. And at the time, my sponsor was like, oh, crap, like, we got no time to go testing. Like, can you just drive it around the block or something? I'm like, okay, whatever. So I take out my, like, super illegal race car onto the street. I'm, like, testing the steering, testing the handbrake, and I do one spin turn, right? I basically do a drift around one corner, trying to go back to the shop. Well, I do one spin turn, and I see lights behind me again. I'm like, God damn it, again? <laughs> so I get busted. Like, the cop's, like, rushing to my car. I, I pull him to the shop garage. He's, he has his gun drawn. Like, license, registration. I'm like, oh, sir, I don't have a license or registration. This is a pro car. Um, and I got busted again. Oh, my goodness. I didn't have a license. It was a legal, super illegal race car on the street. My dad was there. He's like, oh, that's my son. That's my son. He's like, I don't care. You weren't driving. Get away from the vehicle. So then... I went to court again and then they're like, well, this is your second offense. Like you, you really can't drive anymore. So then my license driving privilege was taken away for at least three years. And I finally got my license at the age of 19, which means I was well into my college years. So guess what? My mom had to drop me off at college every morning. That actually makes a lot of sense. I have never seen your car in high school. Yeah, that's why. (laughs) <laughs> I was like, for, for pro racer, I've never seen you guys car in the parking lot at all. Yeah. <laughs> Aren't you a pro racer? Like, where's your car? Are you sure it's the right But that, that's a great story, man. Um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Going back then and be like, okay, Ken's this super drifter guy. Where's his car? <laughs> his car in yeah. the parking lot. Um, but I'm kind of curious, too, like, just stepping back a bit, when you talked about running a business, running your team, so how important has your team been for your success? You know, you said your dad is a huge part of that. But obviously, yeah. we watch F1 racing on Netflix, which is a pretty great series, by the way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we're just like, wow, like, there's so much that happens behind the scenes with the team and the stress mm-hmm. in their face and the looks, not just the driver. You know, like, mm-hmm. how has the team been so intricate a part of your success so far? So in any form of racing or motorsports, the driver and the performance you see on track is only like maybe 10% of the, 
of the entire picture. So a lot of the operations happen behind closed doors, behind the garage shutters and team teamwork is extremely, extremely, extremely crucial um, team prep work, um, you know, organizing your team and ha- each team member knowing their role plays a huge difference when it comes to like repairing on track damage. So teamwork is about 90, 85, 90% of what actually goes down on the track. And that's what determines your success on and off the track. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times drivers don't show much appreciation for the team, but they're the ones, they're basically like the backbone of what we do on track. And they're the guys that prepare the car for us, makes sure that, you know, the hood's completely closed, tire pressures are right, the lug nuts are torqued down, the car is fueled up, nitrous tanks are open, glass is clean. Like even down to when it rains, as I get into the car, they're the ones that are there waiting with a towel, wiping down my shoes because I can't be driving with, you know, wet shoes. So it's huge. I mean, the role they have in the team is, is what makes a winning driver separate from those that never really get to see the podium. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I do want to ask this question just because it's with like Asian Hustle Network and mm-hmm. um, regarding like Asian representation, um, what's your perspective on Asian representation in the racing community? Is it too little and how has it changed over the years? And for for Japanese Americans, especially, or Japanese, um, like how many do you see in the racing community? Because I know that there's, you know, the drifting, um, you know, drifting is like pretty popular in Japan, but do they yeah. come very often and do they actually stay or do they go back to Japan? And um, So, in, in motorsports, especially drifting, like you said, drifting is very popular in Japan, but the fact is drifting started in Japan. That's mm-hmm. where drifting came from. So um, Japanese car culture has always, always, always been widely accepted in the American drifting community, mm-hmm. only because that's where the roots are. Um, it started on the streets, actually. So it was kind of like a, like a very rebellious, um, outlawed form of motorsports. Um, and then when it became a professional sanctioning body um, with D1 Grand Prix, which is a Japanese organization, um, they were considered, or Japanese drifting guys were considered like legends. They were like the forefathers of drifting. So Japanese representation in drifting is huge. It's always been huge. That's where it comes from. Um, and, you know, people respect that. I think people still respect the fact that, you know, it came from Japan. And that's why we have terms like JDM, you know, Japanese domestic market, but it's, yeah, it's, it's widely accepted. But if you go to like different racing bodies, like NASCAR at first, it was like, like, what are you Asians doing here? Mm-hmm. When Toyota first got into NASCAR more than 10 years ago, Ford, GM, Dodge, all those guys like huh, Toyota, like they're never going to make it in NASCAR. They're just going to get their ass chewed and they'll, they'll leave right away. The crazy part is Toyota is the most American auto manufacturer mm-hmm. today. Yeah. There's no other manufacturer that's more American than Toyota. There's five plants that produce, no, seven plants that produce all American made vehicles that comes out of the entire Toyota lineup. Camry, Sienna, uh, Highlander was at one point or still at one point. Uh, it is yeah, still made here. Um, Avalon, all those cards are made here in the United States, 100%. So to come to this point, like Toyota had to fight their way into, you know, being accepted in NASCAR. Mm-hmm. When they started winning, um, people were still like, no, that's flawed. They must be cheating and whatnot. But then they never stopped winning. Like, they continued to win in NASCAR. And then people started to soon realize, well, wait a minute, like, this Toyota Camry that we drive is like 100% made here. Like, why are we bashing them so hard? They just didn't like the fact that it was a Japanese company mm-hmm. being represented in an all American uh, motorsport sanctioning body. Mm-hmm. So now it's accepted actually. Like if you go to any NASCAR race, walk through the parking lot, there's a ton of Toyota Tundras, Tacomas, Camrys you'll see in the parking lot and a huge, huge, huge fan base and following that follows the brand, the brand's athletes that compete representing Toyota. And so 
it's more accepted today than it, it ever was in NASCAR. But if you follow, like you said, Formula One earlier, um, there's always been some sort of Japanese representation in Formula One. Um, for one, the manufacturer Honda mm -hmm. is an engine supplier for teams like Red Bull, um, AlphaTauri, and they even had their own Formula One team back in the day. Toyota also had a Formula One team back in you know the late 90s, early 2000s. And so Japanese representation in the pinnacle of motorsports has always been there from, mm -hmm. I wouldn't say from the start, but from the early days of Formula One. Today, uh, for the first time in, I forgot how, like seven years or something, we have a Japanese driver in AlphaTauri in Formula One. Uh, he's 20 years old, a very young rookie that made it into Formula One, graduating from Formula Two last year. But Yuki Tsunoda is a Japanese driver competing in Formula One. And again, Formula One is like the top, top, top level of motorsports. So um, last year we had a Thai driver in Formula One, Alex Albin. Uh, he was a driver for Red Bull. So um, it may not seem like much, but there is Asian representation in all forms of motorsports. Um, rally racing, Toyota's huge into rally racing. Um, even prototype racing, you'll see Japanese drivers. Um, Kamui Kobayashi, he's a driver for Toyota and their uh, hypercar Le Mans program, or yeah, like what other series was there? Even like off-road racing, there's some sort of Japanese manufacturer representation. So uh, it's not that rare. Mm -hmm. um, now going back to my series, there's three of us Japanese drivers um, that are of you know basically Asian backgrounds. The funny story is, um, none of us are like American American. Like we were all born in Japan. We, we came here to compete in drifting. I mean, I, I I'm pretty much American because I was raised here, yeah. um, but I'm still a Japanese citizen. Mm -hmm. um, so there's three of us Japanese in formula drift. Um, and every year, like, you know, some drivers come and go, um, you asked earlier if they come and stay for the series, but a lot of the times they come here, you know, do it, do what they want to do, like compete in formula drift. And then they go back. Um, mm -hmm. One other Japanese driver, Dai Yoshihara, he's been in Formula Drift since day one with me. So, yeah, I mean, there you go, if, if that answers your question. Yeah, that does. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Thank you, Ken. I guess, like, the second to last question I'm going to ask is, like, what are your, what's, what are your goals for the, for the rest of the year, 2022? Like, what's next for you? Um, this year, for 21, our season actually hasn't started yet. We're starting in just over two weeks now, and wow. I've been hustling to get my car ready. Uh, it's nowhere near done. So yeah, right after our conversation here, I'm going to go back to the shop and get on my car. But uh, the goal this year is to, well, actually, let me, let me go back. The goal every year is to, you know, obviously make it to the championships, win the championship. The closest I've gotten is second place in 2015 overall championships. Um, but yeah, every year the goal has been the same, you know, just perform to, to the best of my abilities um, but at the same time, make sure the sponsors are happy. The fans are having a great time and just, just enjoy life. You know, I mean, that's been my whole thing is like, keep enjoying it because the moment I stop enjoying or the moment I start to question whether I'm still having fun is probably the day that I should probably reconsider my career. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, just, you know, just go out there, perform to the best of my abilities and have fun. Now moving forward, um, let's just say like five years down the line, Obviously, as an athlete, we have a like an age range of when we should start looking into, you know, moving away from the actual driving aspect and maybe taking on the challenges of, you know, running a team and hiring a driver. So that would probably be my next move. And I've already started my company. I'm running my own team now. Naturally, it would be to shift away from the driving portion and hire a 20 year old young kid, maybe a 20 year old Japanese kid, put him in my seat and uh, pay him to represent my brand. Wow. So it's just making room for the next generation. I think yeah. my time is coming up soon. I mean, I've been in it for 20 years now, so you gotta make room. You've been an inspiration for all of us, man. I appreciate that. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> awesome. So we have one last question for you, Ken, and that is if you could give an advice to someone who's trying to get into uh, drifting or just racing in general or motorsports. or motorsports, what advice would you give them? 
I get this question a lot. And the number one question I get actually is like, how do I get sponsored? Like, I want to be athlete. Like I want to get paid to do what you do. Um, and I always tell them like, if you're only looking for ways to get sponsored and make a living off of it, mm-hmm. then I think you're trying to do it the wrong way. Like they have to enjoy what they're doing first. And if you're passionate about what you do, you know, about racing, drifting, and not, not even just that, but passionate about anything you're trying to do, I think the money and the success will follow. And if it doesn't, then you were obviously not passionate enough to continue pursuing success in that field. So just have fun, you know, like drifting is a fun sport. Um, buy cheap tires, lock your diff, <laughs> buy a car you don't mind crashing and just have fun. Yeah. Just be passionate about it. Yeah, Love that's it. really good advice. Yeah, thanks for that advice, Ken. And how can our listeners find out more about you online? Uh, I mean, like everyone else and their moms nowadays, I'm all over social media, Instagram, at Ken Gushi. I have a YouTube channel following my everyday or every other day activities, um, Twitter, Facebook, all that. Awesome. At Ken Gushi. At Ken Gushi. Awesome. We'll include that in the show notes. Well, it was awesome having you on the show today, Ken. Thanks so much for sharing your story. Yeah, I appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. And great connecting you again after all these years. Yeah, yeah. SGV in the house. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Ken. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Hey, guys. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the show. We would like to get to the top 10 on iTunes, so be sure to leave us a five-star review. We release an episode every single Wednesday, so stay tuned. Thank you guys so much. The Asian Hustle Network podcast supports the Department of Health and Human Services COVID-19 education campaign, We Can Do This, in efforts to increase education and awareness about COVID-19 vaccines. Whether due to language barriers or lack of access to healthcare, Many Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islanders face unique challenges to getting accurate vaccine information. We hope that amplifying these resources, especially in other languages, will help reach and protect our most vulnerable communities. Please visit wecandothis.hhs.gov for more information.